0: Halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, is this the stupidest thing I've ever done? But you kind of just have to go back to your gut and be like, you know what? I have to trust my instincts on this. The first phone call was Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And I thought, is this a crank call? And he went right in. He goes, hi, I'm interested in talking to you about a possible project for a bank. And how much do your pieces weigh? The company that was supposed to rig the whole thing. Oh my God, I think it was two weeks before opening, they said, sorry, we can't do it. It's just too complicated. I was like, too complicated? I'd laid out all these very detailed
1: drawings. And so we did it ourselves. Welcome to the Installation Art Podcast, the world's number one podcast about installation art and the people who work with it. Today's guest is no stranger to fireproofing certifications. And in case you're new here, this is a reference to a story in episode one. Go check it out. Her work is at once light and delicate, but also monumental. It fills spaces that are over 100 foot wide, that's 35 meters, and sometimes just as tall. Her primary material is miles upon miles of colorful ribbon and fabric strips. She has created permanent public artworks, private commissions, and monumental installations all across the United States and in Italy. And all that as an independent artist. My guest today is none other than Ann Patterson, based in Brooklyn and in Rhode Island. Before we get into today's episode, I have to apologize if this interview sounds a little strange. We had some technical difficulties and we were both sick during recording. Nevertheless, the conversation was very interesting. Anne Patterson had to move a lot as a kid because her parents were divorced and living in separate states, so she was constantly being ferried around. She was super into dance, especially ballet. She says that if she wasn't an artist, she would be a surgeon or maybe a ski instructor. Hmm, go figure. She began her academic journey by studying architecture at Yale University and then moved on to a master's in theater design at Slade School of Art in London. For over 10 years, she worked as a set and costume designer in theaters and at music festivals all over the United States. It is her theater background that opened the door into the world of visual art and installation when, through previous work and connections, she was invited to do a residency at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. How did that opportunity come about for you? It was the
0: 100th anniversary of the Men and Boys Choir, and they wanted to celebrate that, but they wanted a visual artist who was connected to music. They didn't want a composer. So I was just Mm -hmm. very lucky.
1: So what did you do for that project?
0: That's my first fabric piece that has miles of ribbon hanging in that cathedral,
1: which mm-hmm. is something
0: I've repeated again in various renditions and forms and colors and and so on. But that was the first time. That was my first installation.
1: How did you have like this audacity to think, oh, I could make something so huge? Well, to be honest, when you're working in
0: the theater you are given a very large space to create a set and you are filling that space from edge to edge. So I think my training was such that I just came in and I thought this is like a theater and I get to fill this space. I don't think I even questioned, I didn't think, Oh, I shouldn't fill this whole thing. And I think it's just, I mean, it does sound incredibly sort of egotistical, but I think it was actually much more from my artistic background that that this is the way I'd been working for 20 years. Here's the space, you fill it. That's really how it happened. And I'd worked with that ribbon before with another installation for Brooklyn Philharmonic, you know, a set designed for them. So I knew how fantastic it could, I had a pretty good idea that would work what I was trying to do.
1: So how do you go about sourcing miles and miles and miles of ribbon?
0: Well, I have for a while, I used a Chinese manufacturer, and then that became problematic because I could never reach them, and then I was trying to get certification that it had been fireproofed and I couldn't really talk to anyone or so on. So then I found a really great U.S. manufacturer. Lion Ribbon is their name, and I work with them a lot. And then, additionally, for the project I did for Capital One, I actually fabricated my own ribbon. That piece is 60 feet tall. So I had bolts of white fabric, and I printed on the fabric this yellow and then blue. Yeah, so the, the length changes color. Exactly. And then I had those big bolts of fabric. They weren't that wide. They were 55 inches wide, I think. Then those were laser cut into ribbons. That was a big project, figuring all that out, finding the proper printer and finding the material that could be laser cut. And there still were issues throughout the whole thing, but we got mm. there. I mean, there are always issues when you're making something that big. Yeah. And this last project I just did for St. John the Divine, it's gold in the center, and I wanted it very reflective. And I actually sourced ribbon for this one from Mumbai, India, which was kind of amazing because I would found this piece of ribbon that is very metallic, and I could not find anything like that here um, through any sources or anything. And so I knew someone in Mumbai. And anyway. Wow. Yeah, which was very cool. And also with that one, we also bought some gold fabric and had it laser cut too. We did a variety of things.
1: You must be an expert in ribbons and the properties of different materials.
0: Well, you have to test them all. You think you know, because rayon usually works really well because it melts. It's got plastic in it and you want Mm -hmm. it to melt when when it's laser cut because then it binds the edge so it won't unravel. But it doesn't really matter what it says it is. You really have to test everything out. So you just send them a sample and then ask them to laser cut it and see what happens. Because sometimes it burns too much and then you get this brown edge, which is really ugly. And sometimes it tangles like crazy or it just doesn't cut through properly. I work with this guy, Vadim, out of Columbus, Ohio. He will call me and be like, Ann, that is the worst (laughs) fabric. We can't cut that. It's not working at all. It's messing up our machines. It's trial and error.
1: Oh, Can you share a behind the scenes story about some unexpected issues you faced and how you dealt with it? Well, one big
0: one was um, when I was doing, which was not a fabric piece, it was murmuration, which was the metal birds. The fabrication on that actually went really easily. We worked with this metal company, Vans Industry out of Pennsylvania. They have a giant laser cutter that cuts metal. So that part worked really well, getting these large panels each panel had like 15 birds and they were all connected but when we got to the cathedral we had everything delivered and we had about a I don't know a week and a half two weeks I guess to attach all the monofilament onto everything and get everything figured out everything was going great and then the riggers came in and they were unlike other riggers I'd ever worked with they didn't know how to really work with computer render drawings like you know we had everything laid out which is what we always have done And they said, well, no, just put the birds on the floor where you want them to go, and then we'll pull them up. And we were kind of apoplectic because, you know, the whole thing has this big swooping motion through it. It's not just like one thing can go here, one thing is here. They have to be connected, and they have to be at different heights. And we worked forever figuring out how we wanted to lay this thing out. So I had one assistant there, Dan Harrington, who was absolutely fantastic. And he just ended up getting up on the scaffolding with these riggers and directed them. And we made the whole thing really work. But there was a moment there where I thought, you know. and, And the other thing that was interesting about that is that piece had stainless steel birds and copper and brass. And at the last minute, I decided to not include the brass ones. Why? It was a third of the piece. It looked so good the way it was. I think that's something you have to really, you really learn as an artist, is you have to sometimes make those really big, brave choices at the last minute. And you just have to, I did it with St. John the Divine. We had the piece, we brought it up to 30 feet up from the floor. It was going to go up to almost 100 feet. We brought it from 30 feet and I thought, wow, the gold and the red are really dense. It's denser than I thought it was going to look. So I thought, well... That's going to probably be okay. And then I woke up that night in the middle of the night and I was like, it's just too dense. It's too dense. We were ahead on that project. So we had no one in there on Thursday. At that point, we'd actually brought the piece. The end of the day, Wednesday, we'd brought it back down. So it was like a chest tight, the whole giant truss and all the ribbons. And I didn't have my crew and I gave them the day off because we were ahead. And so I went in and I cut out 200 ribbons.
1: Just snip them off.
0: Cut them off. And I was like, this is it. Once they're cut, that's it. You're not putting those back on. Yeah, And you just have to, you know, halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, is this the stupidest thing I've ever done? But you <laughs> kind of just have to go back to your gut and be like, you know what? I've done this many times. I know what works and I know what doesn't work. And I have to trust my instincts on this. And I probably could have cut out a few more. yeah, But it made a huge difference, a huge difference, because it was this big, solid thing that was blocking the energy. And the whole point of that project is that you have to leave space between all those Ribbons and fabric pieces that the spirit and the energy can move through it. It's such a giant piece. It's one hundred and twenty five mm-hmm. feet long. So if you just put this solid thing in the middle of the cathedral, it's going to block everything. You know it has to be a part of the architecture, a part of the stained glass window. It's a part of the light coming through. So it was really important that I took all those pieces out.
1: Mm. Do you always have to be personally present at the install?
0: I always am. I can't imagine not being there.
1: Would you like to make works that don't require your presence?
0: No, I love being there. It's such a high for me. It's so exciting when it goes up. And also there are all these things that happen that you don't know are going to happen, like these two examples of cutting out the birds and cutting out the ribbon.
1: Mm.
0: Now, I guess if I had a piece that, well, you're never going to get exactly the same space. I was going to say if I had a piece that was super successful and that just moved somewhere else, but unless it's the exact same space, it's going to look different in a different place. And you kind of need to be there. Also, I love doing that. That's one of my favorite parts of the job. The installation of it. The installation and working with the riggers and working with my team. If you stay open, a lot of those people have really good ideas. If you go in like, okay, I've got a really good groundwork here. I've really thought this out. This project's going to be fantastic. But if you can stay open to that, someone coming along might be like, you know, you might want to do this. You can get to, a, I think, a much better place often.
1: Has that happened as well?
0: And that happened a lot with theater stuff. Mm -hmm. I worked a lot with this conductor, Robert Spano, and the thing I've really learned from him, especially, well, in collaborative situations, you have to really trust the person you're working with and trust them enough that you're open to being really vulnerable and showing them your really lousy ideas. Because if you can share those crappy ideas, they can lead you through to the really good ideas. That's what I found with him. Unless you were willing to say, this is not it, but I feel there's something here that will lead us to the next spot. But, you know, if you're not brave enough or you don't feel comfortable enough to share it, you're kind of never going to get to the next spot. You're probably not going to end up with this thing that you don't like, but you may detour over here to something that is not going to be as great as the thing that you might have gotten to if you'd gone through that not very successful idea.
1: It's very interesting to me because most artists work alone in total isolation. You sound like you have multiple people working on your projects. How did that come
0: about? Uh, it re- You know, it's at different stages. Right now I'm working on a new project for a museum and it's just me solo in my little studio working away. And then I'll get... Feedback from like a couple of friends I will call midway through. I'm a friend I'm probably going to call at the end of this week and say, hey, can you FaceTime with me? I can show you some things. But if I'm on a larger project, I usually have one real point person assistant, and that has generally been Kina, Kina Park. Although the last couple of years, she's been doing more film design work. So she hasn't been. But, you know, she's always seems to come around when I really need her, which is interesting. Even for St. John, because we had the big union strike here, there was no film work going on. So mm-hmm. she was actually available to come in, which was absolutely fantastic. So I have one person like that. And then when we're building the pieces, I usually have about six people. And I tend to use the same people, but not always. It's all artists, so everyone's freelancing and doing their own thing. So sometimes people obviously aren't available. And then they'll say, but I have this friend you might like, and she could do it, which is kind of great, too. Mm-hmm. Or often, I ask the people working with me. You know, the ones I've already booked, like, do you know someone else who might be available? Because it's really important that everyone gets on well. Yeah. I almost always work with theater people to do all the drafting and all that stuff because it's so similar. It just works for me. That's my point of reference is the way theater sets are done. So I like yeah. having someone who has that same background. And the drafting's very, very similar. And it just, it works really well. They're just such problem solvers. mm It's an interesting craft because each show you do has different requirements. You have to build a pond in one, so you have to figure out, well, what would that be like? And the next one, you have to build floating stars. You have to figure out what, you know. So people are very open to using new materials and figuring out solutions and so on. Hmm. Do you do the drafting yourself? I used to do a little bit of it, and then, you know, I wouldn't do it for, like, six months and the whole program would have totally changed. And by the time I'd figure out the frigging yeah. new program, I would have wasted like a week. And I was like, this is not a good use of my time or my creativity. I still build actually 3D models, like for the project oh. I'm doing in Florida. It's a museum and I have a floor in the museum. Someone built the museum for me, a theater designer, actually, Jesse Belginger, But, um, I make little things and I put them in there and I look at the scale and what's it going to feel like when you walk through this room to that room. And I get that, you know, everyone says, well, you could do it so easily on the computer. You could get someone to render it and then you could feel like you're walking through it. But I get so many ideas when I'm making those things, those little model pieces Mm -hmm. and moving them around and stuff. So I really like that process.
1: Kind of harks back to your architectural education. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And the other thing is
0: I had, A dollhouse when I was a kid, and I spent Mm -hmm. hours with my dollhouse, and I made everything. I made all the clothing, and I made all the furniture, and I made curtains, and I made little dishes out of clay. I mean, this whole world. I spent hours spending time creating it and making it and stuff.
1: Yeah, I did that too when I was little. I had a dream of having like a whole world of doll stuff, everything in miniature. Pretty fun, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like when it's install day, you are pretty focused and decisive. You deal with stress well by the sound of it. You can't be
0: indecisive. You don't have time. You know, St. John the Divine, we had five days. The first day they had to build the truss. So that's not my day. I'm lost that day. And then You've really got to hit the ground running. You can't diddle-dally around and stuff like that. And also, I've really thought it out. I spent a lot of pre-production time going over it, visiting the space, meeting with the riggers, meeting with the powers that be at the cathedral. Mm. And I, I save pretty copious notes from past projects, like how we did things and even up to like, what were the size of the boxes that we put all the ribbons in? And what other equipment did we need? How many pairs of scissors and how many rolls of tape? And all that stuff, so you don't have any of that stuff where you go, oh, shoot, we need more tape, we need more scissors. That stuff can really really mess up a project if you have five days to load it in, right?
1: Mm. What sort of skills have you had to learn to create this kind of work?
0: Well, I naturally am drawn to color, so that is not really a skill I had to learn. I think of I a really good color sense. I mean, one thing I have, it's not really a skill, but one thing I have learned about my process is that whatever I do, when you're so funny, when you say, how can you be so audacious to fill the whole space? Whatever I do, I need to bring it down a little bit. I always make it right. too big. I think it's from the theater world. I'm trying to fill right to the edge because you never seem to have enough room. Yeah. So that was my instinct. I've learned that actually you need to bring it down so there's space around it. Interesting. What other skills have I had to learn? Well, I've learned a lot about rigging, which is really helpful to know and to understand, especially the language of it and how we're going to do things, truss loads, and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, because the first big project you did in San Francisco, I couldn't really tell from the pictures how you suspended all these ribbons, but surely in a cathedral, you have to use some kind of a nifty system. Most
0: cathedrals have, we'll go from the outside in. They have the roof, and then they have this big crawl space where they usually have something that's sort of like a catwalk. And then below that, they have the vaulting. So when you're in the cathedral looking up, you see this beautiful vaulting. At Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, after the Great Fire, they never replace the vaulting. Mm -hmm. So the catwalk is exposed. And that is one reason I came up with the idea, because when they gave me a tour of the whole space, it was this incredible catwalk, which is, again, just like the theater. It was just like pipes in the theater. I was like, oh, my God, that's just sitting there. I can hang anything off that. Right. You know, so I don't think I would have come up with this idea. I'm sure I wouldn't if that had not been exposed. Right. Because I don't think anyone would have been able to afford the truss. And then you have to have lines that, you know, it's really complicated. Like at St. John the Divine, there are holes that come through the vaulting and then there are cables and motors on the other side of the vaulting. And then they have to do this whole load transfer. When they get to a certain point, the load transfer has to go above rather than below. And it's a really big deal. And they've done a lot of amazing stuff in that cathedral, and the riggers have been the consistent same riggers for, I think, like 30 or 40 years. So they know that stuff inside and out. But Grace Cathedral didn't have anything like that, Mm -hmm. partly because they never needed to, because if they ever hung anything, they'd just hang it off the existing catwalk.
1: So it was basically the perfect learning opportunity for all your future projects. Yeah. Well, and also the fact that I saw it and my background being in the
0: theater, I was like, oh, I know how to work with this. This is great. Yeah.
1: How much does one mile of ribbon weigh?
0: Hardly anything.
1: Really? I would have thought it's so heavy. No, no.
0: That whole piece that's hanging now probably weighs maybe, oh, it doesn't weigh much at all. The rope, we have rope that the ribbon's attached onto that, but it's just plastic rope. That may weigh something. But each box, there are like five boxes, and each box probably weighed 30 pounds. It's like 300 pounds. It hardly weighs anything. Mm. okay so
1: light which is a huge plus too yeah do you have favorite resources uh, or tools or a program that makes your work and life way easier (laughs) i have really good fabric scissors really beautiful fabric scissors
0: which I have labeled all over them, fabric only. All my scissors have fabric <clears> only <throat> on them. And then the ones that aren't or are, say, craft scissors on them. So I try to keep them all separated, which, of course, never works out. But my silver ones do not get used. Um, I mean, I have a couple paintbrushes I really love when I'm doing renderings that, you know, just feel really comfortable in my hand and that I feel like an old friend that I know really, really well. I have a, a palette that I really love, too. Like, I wouldn't want to have to start with a new palette. You know, those things that you've made projects with. I actually just, it's a little bit off subject, but I just went back to an old studio that I was in for about 15 years, like 15 years ago. Some artist friends are still there, and I'd left some stuff at these bookshelves in the hallway there. And so I went to pick it up, and they were about four large shopping bag fulls of sketchbooks. A lot of it is figure drawing. I did a lot of figure drawing when I was a young artist and it actually I found it really inspiration to look back through them I thought I want to start doing that again.
1: Yeah. I actually love referencing some older works. I have done multiple projects myself where I redo something or like represent something I've done previously in a fresh new way, like not copying the work but just self-referencing.
0: That's a great idea. That actually gives me a lot of food for thought for me when I go through these sketchbooks and think of it that way.
1: Yeah, I find it really helpful for me to look back on when I was even a kid or the kind of stuff I did and get inspiration from that today because I feel like it kind of takes me back to who I am. Yeah, and remembering the instinct almost, the impulse of why you did what you did. Where you weren't overthinking things. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's true
0: but I was I was looking around I was like there's got to be places I can just go do some life drawing
1: have you made any works that are permanent public art projects that are there forever I just did one for Capital One Bank that's a permanent piece and that opened
0: around this time last year it opened in well January of 23
1: did that change your approach somehow it having to be there indefinitely.
0: The only reason it really changed for me is that I did it the same way, but it made me realize that, first of all, I had to investigate cleaning the issues and how were they going to clean it and dust it and stuff like that. So we together mm-hmm. figured that out with the management people there. But it made me more confident that these pieces can be permanent. You know, people shy away if they hear fabric and you have to kind of remind yeah. them that there's like the Bayeux tapestry and there's the unicorn tapestry and, you know, art, in fabric form, can last a very, very long time, so long as it's taken care of. Yeah, There's an amazing, actually, textile workshop at the St. John the Divine, where they repair old, huge, huge tapestries and small tapestries and individuals. You know, a private person can come in and say, I have this beautiful rug. It's got a hole in it here. Can you mend it? I spent a little bit of time in there. It was amazing seeing what they can do and how they weave things together and they figure out the right... If it's a silk yarn or a cotton yarn or how they're going to do it. And the cleaning, they have this giant, giant bathtub. And then they have like a structure on top of it and they lie on their stomach. On Oh. I don't know, like a bed. Yeah. They move that along and then they go below and they clean it.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. I'd love to see that.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable. You're like, what? <laughs> and these people are not like, you know, 20-year-olds are older. And she's like, oh, it's actually really comfortable.
1: (laughs) You get on it and you lie there. Yeah. Is there a concern regarding fading and the color? I did a test a while
0: ago, I'd say five or six years ago, where I put some of these ribbons outside for about four or five winters in cold New York winters. And some do fade and some don't. Mm -hmm. So I have that information. I mean, it was so extreme. They're outside in, you know, with the snow and rain and everything and the hot hot sun baking them. Yeah. So I have a kind of a sense, but I mean it's really particular to where you are. Luckily cathedrals none of them are permanent, but you know, they're quite dark. And this piece for mm. Capital 1 is actually a very light space, but it's a brand new building. So it's got the proper film on the window to protect all the fabrics and ah. stuff like that. So I think yeah, I'm okay great. there.
1: Yeah, in Australia it would definitely be a consideration because the UV is just so strong.
0: Right. It would be a big consideration.
1: Mm. What role do you see the audience playing in your work? Is it important that they interact with your work?
0: It's really important. Why? I think the work really comes into being when the people are there. And I don't know if it's just someone needs to witness it, but they're quite kinetic, these pieces. You know, so you don't see that when you see a photograph of it. So the fact that when someone is below it and then it's moving around, there's that interaction that the viewer has with the piece. The pieces in the cathedral are very spiritual and feel. I mean, you are in, obviously a spiritual space, but there is this sense of the energy or grace or spirit coming down the ribbons and your energy going up. You just get that sensation, and you know that is a big part of the piece, and that doesn't happen unless someone is there experiencing that, right? Mm. At, at Grace Cathedral, they would do yoga. They have free, well, they have what pay what you can yoga every Tuesday night and they still do it. And they sometimes get up to five, 600 people, which is kind of amazing because they have pews and people go between the pews and they have this big labyrinth and they go there. And the class is at six o'clock. And when people come in, the ribbons are hanging dead straight. And as the yogis started doing the yoga, the heat would rise, and they, the ribbons would go crazy. It was like a light show.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Well, the piece there was only supposed to be up for four months, and they were the community that was so adamantly always writing and calling the cathedral and saying, please don't take it down, please don't take it down.
1: <laughs> awesome. That's cool. Yeah. But you've also had pieces where people actually like walk through the ribbons and can touch them. Yes. Uh, Has anything ever gotten damaged? No,
0: which is amazing, which actually shows the durability of these fabrics. Because the piece that was at the Ringling Museum had over 300,000 visitors go through that thing. And then that same piece went to a museum in Denmark, which I don't think had nearly as many people, but it probably had at least 50,000 people. And that piece still is in existence, and it's totally fine. I would say 10 of the ribbons frayed, and we started to think that it was from people's watches snaggy because they seem to mm. always be around that height. Well, you have a watch on, but a lot of people don't wear watches. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But it was interesting because where they frayed was at the same height consistently. But it was only, as I said, eight or ten. And there's a piece now, Color Factory, which is an experiential museum experience in Chicago. I've one there. And they get a lot of people going through that piece. It's really fun. It's very sensual and it's very... um It's a little scary in a way. You get slightly lost, and I think that's actually part of the power of it. It takes you outside yourself. You know, for a moment, you're a little disoriented, Mm -hmm. especially when I did the one at the Ringling, because that room was so large, and it's very dark, and you have projection hitting the ribbons, and you're wandering through. And that was very connected with music. We had a soundtrack for that one, too. So it's very um, experiential.
1: Your work has traveled quite a lot, or at least you have done projects all over the States, in Europe. Do you have any stories or memorable experiences involving transport and shipping of the work?
0: I've been really lucky.
1: <laughs> I mean, the Zenya
0: piece, but I used all... Well, that was a bit of a nightmare, actually. So Zenya okay. asked me to do a project. It was all about sustainability and reusing materials. So I had access to their last three years of the fabrics that they use for their collections. And I don't know if you know Xenia, but they have the most incredibly beautiful fabrics. Each one is more beautiful than the next. The colors, the the fabric content, and everything. So anyways, we figured out which fabrics we were going to use and that took quite a while because they would say they had so many bolts or something and then they turned out they didn't have enough bolts so then we were kind of back to the drawing board and it was also a very fast turnaround i think i got hired and we had 2 months or something because it was for a fashion show and then it was going to be up as an exhibit for a month after the fashion show so i got to milan and all the fabric had been sent off to a laser cutter to get it cut and i had a team of 7 young italian artists helping me who were fantastic And then each day, nothing would come from the laser cutter. And it was the week before Christmas. And Italians like their Christmas. No one was going to stay longer. Like, it didn't matter what it was. There was no way anyone was going to work after the 22nd or whatever our deadline was. And then finally, (laughs) the things would start to trickle in. The way I like to do the projects is I like to have all the ribbon in the boxes rolled up and so, you know, you have this big rope and you have a guide and you're attaching them on. But this time we had to just, okay, the turquoise are in. Okay, so we're going to attach the turquoise. Here's your chart. Attach where it says turquoise and coil that rope up, put it over here. Then three days later, oh, great, the green are in. Okay, pull that old rope out. So it was pretty stressful. I mean, there was not much any of us could do except for my poor point person at Xenia who had to keep calling the laser cutter and saying, where the heck is the fabric? And it all eventually did come and it all came in. It was really incredibly beautiful. But, oh, boy. (laughs) There's a lot of drinking coffee in Milan waiting for that fabric to arrive. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which isn't that bad. Life
1: could be worse. How long did you spend there after all that?
0: All together. The first site visit I went, I was there for four days. Then I was there for two weeks. And then I was there for another full week. So almost Mm. a month. That was a fantastic project.
1: It looks beautiful. Oh, thank
0: you. And they were just, um, Alessandra Satori, who's the creative director there. He's so busy and he's such an important person in the fashion world and everything. And he took so much, he, it meant so much to him and he was so accessible for me. And we could talk about it. You know, I always felt like he really, this meant a lot to him. My ideas meant a lot and we had enough time to get it to the place we wanted to get it. Everyone at Xenia was fantastic. There's this wonderful woman, Lorenza, who I got to be actually very good friends with. Everyone really wanted it to work. It did.
1: Awesome. How did that opportunity come about, actually?
0: That was just one of those calls out of the blue. They hired a company. It was actually a woman and her husband who I think had a design magazine or design firm out of Germany. I don't know what the criteria was. I'm pretty sure they knew they wanted a fabric artist. And I'm not sure if they knew they wanted a woman. or. But they called me and said, would you be interested? And it was such a, as I said, a really quick turnaround. And I was available. So I said, yes, of course. And then we had a Zoom call and then they flew me over to Milan. I met all the people at Zenya. We all got along. We could tell we could all work together and then it happened. Cool. Sometimes very hard the- when you get things to find out how you got them or why you got them. Uh. Always say to them, how did you find out about me? And they're like, well, I don't know. We're just looking on the web. We're just looking on internet. We're just, you know, of course, you're dying to know, is it the Instagram posting? Is it your website yeah. that you spent money on? And no one can, and you can understand why, right? It's just like whenever any of us are searching for something. Right? You don't know how you end up where you end up. So, True.
1: Well, I found you through the Jealous Curator. Oh, that's cool. What's the normal kind of turnaround time for a project start to finish? How long do you need? I mean, St.
0: John the Divine had talked to me about this for 10 years, which is Mm. crazy. We don't have the money. We don't have the money. We don't have time. We don't have the schedule. And then, of course, COVID came and stuff. So that is the longest. I wasn't working on it, but I was working on budgets and I was working on some very simple sketches. But mostly it was budgetary conversations. And then the fastest was this one with Zenya, which I think was probably t- it was right before Thanksgiving. So it was probably two and a half months total. Wow, yeah. And I had a huge amount of support from them. If I had to do something in two and a half months by myself, it would be pretty difficult. You know, I had this big company that was finding the laser cutter and finding the team to help me. And Yeah. Actually, I found the team to help me. I had a very good friend who lives in Milan, and she knew a young artist, and I reached out to him, and then he brought the other people that Oh, that's cool. I mean, you kind of do what you have to do, right? I'm sure you know that feeling.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, that's kind of the energy you always fly with. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I know. We were having so much trouble with Grace in the beginning because the company that was supposed to rig the whole thing, oh my God, I think it was two weeks before opening, they said, sorry, we can't do it. It's just too complicated. Whereas I was like, too complicated? I'd laid out all these very detailed drawings. And so what we ended up doing was we did it ourselves. They had a big conference room in the basement of the church. And I got a woman who I'd worked with at the San Francisco Symphony to come in who's like a stage manager. And she's really good at organizing things. I got her to come in. My point person, Abby McKee at the Grace Cathedral was fantastic. And then we sent out like an all call to everyone who worked at the cathedral. Please come down and help for a couple hours. It's fun work. You'll enjoy it. And we had this cellist, Joshua Roman. We bribed them, but we'd say, Joshua's hey, playing the cello if you come down. <laughs> and so that's how we ended up just fabricating it ourselves.
1: So what did they have to do, the volunteers?
0: You had rolls of ribbons, so you had to measure the ribbon out. You had to spool it up. We jerry-rigged these spooling machines. You had to put it into little baggies. And then we had this rope, and then they had to tie the ribbon according to a guide onto the rope. It was all laid out pretty well. But after doing that, I realized that that would become part of my process, was that I would Instead of, as I'd done always with set design, where I would find a scene shop to build it, right? That I was like, I'm going to be in charge of the fabrication. I'm not mm-hmm. going to job that out.
1: And it seems to me that you always try to get local people to help on site. Is that correct? Well,
0: Cincinnati, I brought Keena and Dam with me from New York. Milan, yeah, I definitely did. San Francisco, yep. Yep, I have, yeah. It's really nice if you can bring someone like in Milan. I didn't have anybody who was from my team. It's it, it's really nice if you can have somebody because it's pretty stressful <laughs> when you're all of mm. a sudden thrown in to a whole new city and not even to mention the language. And then you don't have your point person. In hindsight, yeah. I should have. I'm sure they would have covered that person coming too. I should have had someone. It all worked out fine, but it would just been a lot less stress for me to have someone that I could have been like, "Oh my god, what do we? What's happened here?"
1: Somebody who knows your work. Exactly. And you. Yeah.
0: Almost just psychologically, just someone to hold your mm. hand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it gets it's hard. I mean, sure,
0: you know, cause you do these big ones too. Yeah. I can tell something like that happened to you the way you're laughing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm always like that. My partner is my technical assistant, I guess. Yeah. And uh, on install day, I'm like, oh, I can't deal with it because everyone's coming to me like, yeah. do you want it like this or like this? All these micro decisions. Yeah. Cuz it all happens kind of site specifically on the day. And um if something is not right or not working, I'll go like, "Oh, okay, let it be. Leave it. I don't care anymore." Right. And my partner will be the person who's like, I'll fix it. I'm like, if you must.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know Keena's a bit like that. I will compromise sometimes and she'll be like, I don't think that's the right thing to do, Anne. And I just admire, I'm so grateful to have her Mm. say the truth. She's not going to just say something to make me happy. She's like, I I don't think that's right, you know?
1: Well, it's sometimes just nice to have somebody else's perspective or like, Mm -hmm. When you've exhausted your decision-making powers and you just like, what should I do now, you know? Right.
0: Right. That's a perfect way of saying it. Exhausted your decision-making powers. That's exactly what mm-hmm. it feels like. Yeah. That's true.
1: Tell me, how do these large-scale projects get funded?
0: Well, as a corporation, they have lots of money, like Capital One. You know, they have a budget for art in the space, and they hired a art consultant who then presented me. So that's how I got it. And then they have a budget that they've figured out beforehand, and they say, this is what the budget is. Can you do it for that? Hmm. Those ones are heavenly when they come through. You don't get them that much, but when they do come through. Let's see. Grace Cathedral had a pretty tight budget. And I think it was mostly funded. They had it funded before they hired me from donors and so on. Same with St. John the Divine. St. John the Divine, actually, I got a big funder, which I'd never done before, to put an initial chunk of money in. And then because she came on, then the cathedral was like, oh, wow, let's really make this happen. That was a really good lesson for me, actually. And I've since spoken to other people in the art world, and they're like, that happens all the time where the artist has to bring some funding in. And I was like, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And they were like, yeah. And this was Mm -hmm. Aggie Gund, you know, who's a big art funder in New York City. Well, in the world, really, but especially in New York City. And so, you know, they're not going to want to say no to her because it's a a famous person and they want to be able to say, Aggie Gund is funded this. So it gives them impetus to find more funding. And it also makes it easier for them more funding because I can go to other fundraisers and say, well.
1: This person's on board. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get that connection?
0: She had seen Grace with Light years and years ago, the piece at San Francisco. And then I'd heard she was interested in it, and I talked to her 10 years ago about finding a home for mm-hmm. it in New York. And she had connected me with a lot of different people. And one of the people she connected me with was was the art liaison person at St. John the Divine. So she was kind of in it wow. from the very beginning. So in a way, it was very easy to be able to go back to her and say, I mean, it wasn't easy. It's never easy asking for money, I don't think.
1: Yeah. So it was basically a long time coming. You already knew the venue. You kind of had the person interested in contributing to it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. And with the art consultant, is it somebody you work with or just somebody who found you randomly? No, or? same
0: thing. This guy named Dale Lanzoni, who used to be at Marlborough, a big gallery in New York, and he's gone off on his own. Mm-hmm. and. Does incredible projects all around the world, actually. He he worked with Beverly Pepper, who's since passed away. She does these giant steel plinths, and he's worked doing her stuff. He's worked with other collectors. Again, I asked him, I was like, Dale, how did you find me? He goes, I don't know. I'm just looking around. I wanted a piece that didn't weigh a lot, and I wanted something that was really colorful. And I saw your piece, and I just thought you were the right artist for it. Awesome. Love that. I know. It's amazing when that happens. And he called me. The first phone call was like a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And I thought, is this a crank call? And he went right in. He goes, hi, I'm interested in talking to you about a possible project for a bank. And how much do your pieces weigh? (laughs) I was like, who is this? What? And I was actually driving. I was in Montana and I was driving to an airport. And I remember just thinking like, what is this? So it's kind of funny, you know, pick up the phone, (laughs) I guess.
1: Yeah, pretty unbelievable. That was
0: my first introduction to Dale. He's very pragmatic.
1: That's a great story. I love that. Have you worked with a gallery?
0: I have. I have a gallery here in Rhode Island, where I am right now. I spend a lot of time up in Rhode Island. Jessica Hagen Gallery. Um, She shows, you know, some of my smaller paintings and smaller sculptures. And then I've worked with a great gallery, which is no longer called Allstad, which was in Sarasota, Florida. And then I've done, there was a Valerie Dillon gallery in New York. I was in a couple of group shows with her, but I've never had a gallery the way most artists do. And I do love working with Jessica for the paintings and the sculptures and stuff. And if she ever brought in an installation, I would obviously do it with her. But at this stage of the game, I've done really well on my own, and I'm not really eager to share you know, give the gallery like mm. 30 or 40 percent of what I'm getting on these projects, because I've built up my name. you know, the gallery hasn't. Yeah. I have a really good lawyer who does my contracts. That's all he does is works with artists. So I do have that, which is kind of like a gallery, at least in the legal side of things. And I can call him if there's a problem with something, or I have him he's in my court.
1: What happens to the work once the show is over? Well, it's usually recycled,
0: or sometimes it's gone to schools. It really depends what condition it's in. Like from Grace Cathedral, it was really dusty and really dirty. We could only recycle Mm -hmm. it. We couldn't really do much with it. There's an organization in New York City called Material for the Arts, where you donate material for the arts, and then nonprofits can go and use those materials. The piece I did at the Venetian, I just knew I probably wasn't going to Use that ribbon again. So I actually donated a ton of that, like boxes and boxes of it. And then, of course, I was like, i oh, someone going to take it and just like recreate my piece? Mm. I'm hoping that whoever used it, they used it for something cool. I needed the space in the studio. It was taking up this whole closet. I was like, I need to get this. And also, there's something about having old projects around that sometimes feels like it's dragging you down a little bit. Sometimes it's good to get them out.
1: You don't like to reuse parts of it? It's funny, that one, I just didn't think I had a lot of extra
0: ribbon already from that project. And I just had this instinct that, um, well, when I did a test for Capital One, I did a lot of different tests of different patterns printed on fabric and those laser cut. And I ended up something very, very simple. But at one point, we had something very complex. It was like a very graphic pattern design in orange and blue. And I ended up using the blue section of that for a smaller sculpture that actually I showed at Jessica Hagen. So I have, mm-hmm. sometimes I do reuse stuff. You can imagine, I have a lot of ribbon from old projects and new and stuff that hasn't even been unfurled, but I still have a lot. Of, I have a lot left over from St. John the Divine, a lot of the gold. The ones you snipped off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have those ones. I have all those, but then I I also just have a lot of other ones too.
1: Mm. What does
0: your studio look like? I was going to show you the studio out here in Rhode Island. It's an old barn that I just took the stables down and put a plywood floor in. And I was over there. It was just getting so cold before we were about to do our talk that I just thought I don't want to sit here in a hat and a parka on and stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was
0: just going to ask, is it heated? It was heated, but it just was taking a long time for the heat. And then the dog was pacing around. That's why I ran back to the house. So that's my studio here, which is really nice. And then the studio in New York has slightly taller ceilings. And I share with a writer, actually. And her husband's a mm-hmm. lighting designer. And I worked a lot in the theater with him. His name's Matt Fry. And she is a television writer. And I love having Melissa next door. I love having another creative person. And she has amazing concentration. And I think I feed off when she's writing. She just like plugs in and I feed off that energy. Yeah. We've been there for about five years. It's a corner studio and it's pretty light filled. So I've got windows on two sides and then I've got two walls.
1: Is it messy? It is pretty
0: messy. Yeah, it is pretty messy. I'm quite neat actually, but yeah, it is pretty messy. I like being a little messy.
1: Mm.
0: I find it more creative. I like getting messy and then I clean it up. Then I get messy again and clean it up.
1: Yeah, I'm the same.
0: Yeah. But I do like knowing that paintbrushes are here, this is here. I can't have it too messy. And it starts to drive me nuts when I can't find something I'm looking for. It feels like it's a waste of time.
1: Have you ever had, since you started doing the installations, some kind of periods of downtime, a lull, where you're like, is there ever going to be a project coming Every up? Every time. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, I have this project now for this museum. It's opening in mid-April, so I have that. But I don't have anything else after that. I'm in the running for a couple public art projects that, you know, I think sound like I might get them. But, you know, either think you're going to get them or you don't think you have a chance in hell to get them.
1: Yeah. Do you submit a lot of proposals and uh, applications? I probably submitted 15. This year? or No, no,
0: total. I'd say between maybe 18, something like that. I've made it to the finals for two things, but I haven't gotten them. Mm -hmm. I should do more. I'm pretty selective about which ones. I know what kind of budget I want to do. And then I can get a pretty good sense now the way they phrase it, like, you know, open to artists around the country, but really interested in artists from Indiana. Well, the odds then are, you know, I feel like I'm not going to. And that's happening more and more often, that it's very specific to an area. Mm. Well, I'm also getting older. It doesn't bother me so much thinking, well, that's because I've got this thing coming up in April. It might really bother me when it opens in April and I don't have anything. You know, I'm talking like, oh, it's fine. (laughs) I'll probably be apoplectic. I'll probably be like, oh, my God, that's the end of my career. I'm never going to get another commission. Things sort of somehow things come along.
1: It seems so. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how do you deal with it? Um, Not well. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've just had a whole year of downtime, so that's why I'm doing this podcast. I'm like, well, I have time. (laughs) Well, that's smart that
0: you're doing the podcast.
1: Yeah, like things trickle in here and there. You apply for something, it comes through, it doesn't, you know. Right, yeah. But, yeah, I don't deal well with it.
0: Yeah, it's very, very (laughs) hard because it's so personal for us as artists, right? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's really personal. It just really feels like the kid in the schoolyard who's left out, you know. And also with social media now, you can get such a horrendous FOMO. You can see all these other people doing stuff and you think, why am I not getting that stuff? Absolutely. But I think it's important to always keep doing. I mean, when I have had those times, if I can then just at least... Do something where I have like a drawing practice every day. I draw for 20 minutes. Like just do something simple. And then it generally tends to lead into doing more work. Like just don't mm-hmm. demand too much of yourself, but just do a thing. I have a thing where when I can't get going, I actually do it all day long. I set my timer for 45 minutes. During COVID, one of the grant organizations that I was involved with, Creative Capital, had a time management workshop you know, like an online Zoom thing when we were all going nuts in early days of COVID. And she explained how 45 minutes is a really good length of time to, first of all, get something done and also for concentration. So when I can't Mm -hmm. get going in the morning on something, I can use it for everything. I can use it for artistic work. And I can also use it for, I, I have to write that email. I don't want to write that email. You have to write the, set the thing for, you can do anything for 45 minutes, right? And then wow. it, once it dings at 45 minutes, especially if it's creative work, I'm like, oh, reset, reset. You know, you just start getting into it. So I use it. It's my little secret tool. I use it all the time.
1: Yeah, I've used that.
0: You do that too?
1: Um, When I'm like in my procrastination era. Yeah. And I'd rather like do anything other than work, especially like just binge watch TV. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll watch one episode and then I'll put a timer on for like 30 minutes and I have to do something Yeah, for 30 minutes. And then once you get going, it's good, right? It's fine. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. It's
0: almost like your brain is like a puppy and you have to lead it along. And then once it gets it, it's like,
1: oh, okay, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that amazes me is that I've been doing this for literally for years now, probably since 2020. And it's still totally, it really does work for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I should should use it
0: more often. Probably 45 minutes. Yeah. And then she was very adamant that, which I don't do, because then once I start getting in the flow, I don't want to stop. But she said, and then once it dings at 45 minutes, it's actually good to take like a three minute walk, either Mm -hmm. outside or just around where you are, just like break for a second and then come back. Okay. I feel like it's taken me. A while to get into that headspace so I'm a little terrified of then stepping out of it right
1: yeah yeah same I get easily distracted
0: I know I think we all do now
1: you've just completed a huge project haven't you you've opened a big installation yeah yeah do you ever get post-exhibition blues yeah I do the
0: thing I find really hard is the whole camaraderie and the whole community that you are connected with, and then it's just gone. Mm. I mean, I'm doing some programming with the people at St. John's, so I do talk to them now a little bit. But like all the young people who are helping me and stuff, you know, they all came to the opening. We all had so much fun, and then it's like. Yeah, I know. And no. also, even the worrying There's something, you know, just knowing that something means that much to you and you're caring about it and you're thinking about it and you're constantly thinking about it. And then all of a sudden it's all done. You're like, whoa.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I've often tried to schedule a road trip or something right after an opening because it really goes like,
0: That's exactly what we did. We went
1: I went out to Utah
0: with my husband Mm -hmm. and some friends. It was just four or five days it was pretty quick but exactly because you just feel I feel like it was actually a little too quick we went right the next morning after the opening I could have had <laughs> I could have had a day or two of a day off just like letting things sort of settle but it, it was pretty great actually to just get away and you feel very accomplished and relieved and like you deserve any vacation that you know is coming yeah. your way oh so. you do
1: have you ever had um Like an epiphany or a turning point during your art
0: career? Well, I think when I first started using those ribbons, I did. As I said, I started using them first in the theater, and then it was probably 16 years later when I sort of remembered using them and thought, okay, this is the perfect material for grace. I did have something kind of crazy happen when I did the color layout for St. John, which was... I was in the cathedral, and it was February, and it's very dark, that cathedral. It's gigantic, but it's dark. And I thought, well, I'd like to have the center be light. So I thought, I'm going to use gold. And then I thought, but I Mm. want the red, and then I want the blue. So I sort of thought it all out. And then I was back at the cathedral. A month later, I was back for Sunday service, and I was sitting in this pretty much the same area I'd been sat in before. And I looked down past the altar at the very end of the cathedral is this stained glass window of Christ. And he has a robe that is gold in the center and then red and then blue. And I thought, Mm. was that there before? And I just didn't make the connection or, I kind of thought I was losing my mind. I went up to someone after the service and I said, has that stained glass window always been there? I said, oh, no, no, no. It was all covered scaffolding. It just came down. It just came down this week. So I was like, oh, this is the best. Serendipity. This is definitely the colors. This is, I've got the, this is right. Because you. Know, I'm sure you do it too. You start doubting yourself going, no, I'll do this. I'll change this. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that was pretty great.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah. Have you ever had a moment where you go, oh, I've made it. Like, this is it. I have to
0: say, I think this, the, the Capital One project felt like that. And this project too. St. John the Divine really felt like that. Because it's in New York, which is my hometown. All my friends are always saying, "I would come to Cincinnati, but I can't come to Cincinnati or I can't come to d c or so to have mm. something where all my friends and family could come that was in my hometown, that felt really, really special, really special. And the amount of people who came from my past for the opening and that was really special. that really mm-hmm. felt really good, good.
1: great. What's a hard truth you've had to learn as an artist?
0: You're hot one minute and then you're not.
1: (laughs) You're not the first person who has told me that.
0: (laughs) You're like, you know, everyone thinks you're like a genius and you're so popular. And then three weeks later, somebody else.
1: Yeah. All the press wants to write about your work all at once. And then two weeks later, it's nothing.
0: Right. Exactly. I think that's the thing you have to remember. Or that's been a hard truth for me. Hmm. And also to try to separate who everyone else is telling you are with how you feel you are. like Because I was saying, oh, you're so great. You're so great. And then that goes away. Then are you going to feel really bad about yourself? And that's when I think it's really important to get back into the studio and remember the reason you do this is because you like making mm. work. And it's great when people think it's great and want to an interview and stuff, but you're really doing it because you really love making the work.
1: Do you like to sit in your studio and do stuff without having an actual like project ahead that you're working toward?
0: No, at all. In fact, every day when I finish whatever I'm working on, I have a sticky note and I write what I'm going to start with in the morning. I read oh. that about Hemingway, that when he wrote, he never stopped until he knew where he was going to pick up the next day. And it really helps because I get in there and I'm like, oh, like the thing I'm doing tomorrow, I just was in there and I did this small bird painting that I really love. And someone today was telling, she was like, no, I looked on Instagram and you have that giant bird. And I was like, I don't have a giant bird anywhere. She goes, yeah, yeah, that giant bird with the gold coming off the back. I was like, I don't didn't ever do a giant bird. And so then she brought up and I said, that's a- actually a painting that's 10 by 10. She goes, Oh, I guess because all your work is so big. And then I saw it. I just assumed that that also was really big. So anyway, a long story to say that tomorrow I'm going to start and try to do that. Make a giant bird. See how large I can make it or if I can make a sculpture out of it or I can do something.
1: Oh, cool. I love that. I'm in a book club and we had this author meet with Eric Larson and that's exactly what he said uh in his process, he always stops mid-sentence so that when he comes back the next day, it's a no-brainer. He just knows exactly what to write in the first minute. And I'm like, wow, that's yeah genius.
0: Yeah. That's what I do. Like I'm doing these big sculptures right now that are these big orbs and they have gold leaf on them and resin and they're totally different than anything else I've done. So I leave a note like you need to put more gold leaf on the left side of this or you need to hot glue this. Like i get very specific and it does. It helps because you get right into it, just like he said. Mm. Don't go, oh, where did I stop? And what do I do next? Mm-hmm. I mean, and Hemingway was adamant about it. It must've been a, a biography of his or I don't know what book, maybe The Movable Feast. I think that's where he talks about his writing process. I think he would do the same thing. He would not quit until he knew where he was going to start the next day. So if he started yeah. getting blocked, he was like, I can't leave till I know what I'm going to do when I get in here tomorrow.
1: That's a great tip. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. I should try it. Yeah. I think you'll find
0: it very useful.
1: Yeah. I do the uh, morning pages, you know, from the artist's way. Mm-hmm. Do it religiously every morning for over a year, for m- multiple years now. And that really helps me like sort out my brain and, Plan the day out as well. Yeah. So that I have like, today I should do this, this, and this. Um, And then it's much more clear.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is amazing, that book. Mm. I have done it too. Yeah. The whole process I did with a couple other artists, actually during COVID. I've done it before, but I did it again. I meditate in the morning. So I find if I meditate, sometimes I do the morning pages. If something's really bugging me, I'll sit down and do the morning pages. But I can wow. do the meditation, and then the morning pages, the next thing I know, it's like.
1: <laughs> I know, right? I think, oh, I should meditate. But- how many? There's only, Well, I think the
0: morning pages are very much like a meditation, in a way. Exactly. Yeah. It does the same thing. It's the same process. It clears your brain from all that chitter chatter. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's how I feel. But it's pretty tedious sometimes.
0: It is. It is very tedious. Sometimes you probably write the same sentence again and again. I can remember doing yeah. that or. You're really mad at something. You just keep going, I hate that thing. And you think, this is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) This is so boring. I have nothing else to talk about.
1: Yeah, I often write something like, I can't be bothered writing today. (laughs) Exactly. What's some piece of advice you would give to an artist who's just getting started and wants to make large work?
0: Oh, I'd probably find someone's work that I really like and see if you could work for them, even if you don't like their work. See if you could be in the studio, because I think you learn so much when you're in a studio, things that you want to do and things you don't want to do. I think that would be helpful. I mean, I do think you can in a sense, create your own opportunities. Like when I remember when I was just starting out painting and I was still doing theater design, but I was painting on the side. And, you know, I'm sure you've done it too. You know, artists would get together and we'd have our own show. Right. So I think there is a lot of merit to be said in doing stuff like that. First of all, you get to make the work, you're going to get to photograph the work, and then you get to invite all your friends and they can see it and stuff. And I think those things can lead to places. I wish Mm -hmm. I had better advice
1: than those two things.
0: That's pretty good advice. Okay. I mean, it's really hard, right? You've got to get those first
1: breaks somehow. What's an important trait for an artist to succeed? Perseverance, right?
0: I mean, what do you think it is?
1: Well, yeah, just insane levels of perseverance, I guess. Just keep going despite all sides. Yeah.
0: That's what I think. just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it.
1: The other thing I think is
0: also you have to, which is good advice, I should follow this myself, is that whenever you get a feeling or you meet someone and you think they could help you in some way, or just don't think about it so much. Just send the email or arrange to have coffee with them or see them or do something. I think all those weird little connections, say, know someone who knows someone who knows someone, and then something often happens. You know, and I often am like, well, I don't want to write that email, oh, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a big, long thing. So I'm trying to get better, which I have gotten a lot better than it used to be. Just send it out there. Like, just put it out. Just put it out into the world. It's going to be fine. If they're not just interested, they won't respond. But you're
1: not going to get anything if you don't do it. If you had a magic wand and you could make anything, anywhere, dream project in terms of size, location, geography, budget, materials, collaboration. Wow. What would you do? I'd love to do
0: something. Well, I'm working with a composer on this piece, the piece in Sarasota, but I'd love to work with more music as a collaborative thing. And. I'm really into these new giant, these pieces I'm making, and they're maybe, the largest one is maybe three feet, four feet in diameter. So I would love to be able to work with a shop and make really big ones, like, you know, 10, 12, 14 foot. I've taken piano wire and I've wrapped it and it just has this very, it feels like drawing actually in a way, because it's just this line that goes around and it's different gauges of wire. And I'd love to be able to work with a shop to figure out how to create the infrastructure for that piece without having to have a large mannequin inside it, a large truss thing or something. Because right now it has so much lightness to it. And I keep thinking, how could I? And at one of them, I just keep adding on to it, seeing how large I can get it before it maybe collapses upon itself. But I would love to be able to work with a metal shop or someone to figure out what that is and how do you make that? Mm. But that doesn't really answer your question, like, where? I mean, the first thing that jumped in my head, actually, was Rockefeller Center, which I'd never, ever thought of before. Because mm. it's so commercial and midtown and busy and tourists. And I was like, where is that come from? So that's
1: kind Gosh. of interesting. <laughs> Subliminal messages from your subconscious. Exactly. The so part of me is like, <laughs> yeah,
0: Rockefeller Center looks great.
1: <laughs> and they have a lot of money up there. <laughs> There you go. Your next project. Yeah. Where can people find you and learn more about your work? Maybe buy your work? I have a few
0: things for sale on my website, anpatterson.com. And then Instagram's a good place to just see what I'm up to. And that's Ann Patterson Studio. That's really the best two places. If anyone mm-hmm. wants to reach me, my email's on the website.
1: I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Oh, great. Excellent. So when's the next big installation? Well, it's this
0: museum show, which will be like an installation. So it's, it's, I can't remember the date. It's like April 17th, I think it opens, in Sarasota, Florida. Mm -hmm. That's the next thing I'm doing, which will be great. I'm working with this fantastic composer, Patrick Harlan. So it's going to be very experiential, even though you're in a museum. We're hoping it's going to feel like you're in a theater, but you get to walk around, and lighting changes as you get to different pieces of art, and music changes as you get to different pieces of art. We're working on it right now. So I think it's going to be very really cool.
1: Sounds awesome. So you're collaborating with a composer. Yes, who I've worked with before.
0: Yeah, he um, wrote this fantastic piece of music called Earthrise which came about when Elon Musk was saying that he had a free spot in his rocket ship to the moon. And Patrick applied. He was like, I'll go to the moon. He didn't get it. But then he had been looking at all this moon stuff. And there's that famous photograph taken, in, I think, in 68, where you see the edge of the moon and you see the Earth spinning. So he wrote this fantastic composition called Earthrise. It's classical, and you could feel the rocket taking off and then the spinning planets and. So we're kind of using it in full, but we're also pulling, well, he's pulling parts of the music out and then repeating them at different moments next to some of my sculptures and paintings and stuff. So I think it's going to be very cool.
1: I wish I was going to Florida to check it out. I'd love to see your work in person one day. Well, thank you so very much for interviewing me. Well, thank you for coming on. It's so awesome talking to you. Your work is just amazing, monumental. Thank you. I'll feel better better soon. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Really lovely meeting you. You too. That was Anne Patterson, based in Brooklyn, New York. You can check out her work, and you should, on her website, annepatterson.com, and on her Instagram, at annepattersonstudio. And if you're in New York, you have the opportunity to see her work in person until May 2024. The installation Divine Pathways is her biggest work yet. It fills the entire nave of Cathedral of St. John the Divine, located at 1047 Amsterdam Avenue in Morningside Heights. As always, all the links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Installation Art Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit follow or subscribe on your podcast app. It really helps. Hey, just one more thing. If you're an artist working with installation or thinking about it or dreaming about it, I have something for you. I've created a private Facebook group called the Installation Art Society, where we can connect and exchange resources. Look for the link at the bottom of the show notes.